welcome to Nyfiken. My name is Peel, and today I have Tobias Nilsson with me. Tobias was until recently a PhD student in biochemistry, and now he has graduated. You wrote a PhD thesis called Protein and Lipid Interaction Within the Respiratory Chain. I was wondering if you describe what the aim of your thesis was. We were studying some of the complexes of the respiratory chain within mitochondria. We were trying to understand what happens between them, what happens in or along the membrane, but also what happens when they interact with each other. And we will come back to this. If I'm not a biochemist, could you explain what biochemistry is? So biochemistry is the study of the chemical processes that go on in living cells. It could be anything between what happens when our DNA is replicated or what proteins do. This is what actually separates biochemistry from chemistry, that it has to happen within something that is living. Yes, it's a really nice little crossover between several fields. There's biology involved, there's organic chemistry involved. There's uh, some physics and physical chemistry involved. So it's a little bit of everything, which is why I liked it. How do you do research in biochemistry? There's a lot of people who do theoretical chemistry. They do, for instance, computer simulations. There's bioinformatics, which is a lot about statistics and trying to build models to describe evolution. Then there's experimental chemistry, which was more what I did. So you were actually in the lab. I was in the lab quite a lot, yes. What drives this sort of research? What is it that you want to be able to explain that we can't explain today? We were studying respiratory enzymes. There's a lot of research that have been done on these because they are so central for life. The particular research we were doing was trying to expand our view of these things because a lot of the research done in the past have been done on either whole cells or on one separate part. Your research is on the last part of the respiratory chain, also called the electron transport chain. The respiratory chain, it starts in some sense with the food we eat that breaks down into sugar, proteins and fat. Before we get to the electron transport chain, the sugar has to be broken down further. And this starts with glycolysis. And I was wondering if you could walk me through glycolysis and the Krebs cycle or the citric acid cycle that follows it. Our main source of energy is from sugar. Glucose is the main source. In glycolysis, glucose is broken down into smaller parts, and then eventually from one glucose, you get two so-called pyruvates. These go into the citric acid cycle, where they are further broken down. One of the things that happens is that something called electron carriages are made. Technically, they're not created there. So the NADH and FADH2, they are complex molecules that take out electrons. So chemical bonds are broken in the citric acid cycle and carbon dioxide is produced as a byproduct. Then the bonds that held the carbon dioxide together with the carbon hydrates, those electrons are delivered to NADH or FADH and then further delivered into the respiratory chain. Most of the things you're interested in, they happen within the cell. It has a wall that separates it from the outside, which we call a cell membrane. Yes, there's a lot of different membranes within the cell. So one is, for instance, surrounding the nucleus where the DNA is. The mitochondria that I have mentioned has two membranes, one outer membrane and one inner membrane. The outer membrane separates the mitochondrion from the rest of the cell. Yep. Then there is the space within the mitochondrion. 
And then there is the inner me membrane that separates what is called the matrix from the rest of the mitochondrion. Yep. Why does it need to be separated? The compartmentalization in and of itself is very important because you can have things that can go through the membranes and things that can't go through the membranes. And when you have a compartment, that means you can keep certain things in one place than the other. But you can also build up a difference between them. And this is very important for the respiratory chain, where the intermembrane space between the two membranes in the mitochondria is a place where you build up a big gradient of protons. This gives you an electrical difference, but also a concentration difference, which in turn represent a potential energy that can then be used to drive processes. Through the membrane? Yes. If I have not, but never studied biochemistry, can you say something about what a membrane is? The main thing that it's consisting of is lipids. We may know these as, for instance, fatty acids or fat-soluble molecules then you also have a lot of proteins. So it's mostly those lipids, and they form up the wall of the membrane. Yes. And then within these lipids, then different other molecules, they are then embedded. Yes, that's, uh, that's a basic idea. Now starts what is called the electron transport chain, which aims at moving protons across this membrane, back into the inner membrane space. Yes. And in order to do that, if it was just a membrane made up of lipid, then nothing could really happen. But instead, there is some different things embedded into this membrane. These things are called complexes. And we have four of them in the human mitochondria. And they are labeled complex one to complex four. I was wondering if you would walk me through complex by complex. In the first complex, electrons are delivered from NADH mo molecule that gets an electron from the citric acid cycle. This electron is then moved within the protein from different electron carrier sites. If I am to imagine this, then this complex is a huge molecule. And the electron is then simply swapped between atoms within this molecule from one atom that is bound to the next one. And then you just like sort of a chain reaction through the complex. Yes, so these different sites that are capable of holding electrons have different reduction potentials. I suppose you can say that the electron skips from one state to another and they always go for a more low energy state. This leads it to move kind of like a direct current and eventually ends up at a chemical catalysis site where it's donated to something that is called coenzyme Q in the case of humans. While doing so, the energy of the electron is reduced and the energy that is released uh, drives structural changes within the protein. These structural changes leads to pumping of pro protons from one side of the membrane to the other. What is an enzyme? An enzyme is a protein that can perform a chemical reaction or catalyze a chemical reaction. And catalysis is then when you have something that makes a chemical reaction go faster. And complex two? Complex two is actually part of the citric acid cycle. The FAD molecule is actually embedded within complex two. It's part of its catalytic mechanism. Electrons are delivered when this complex breaks down succinate into fumarate. Then they are delivered to this coenzyme Q. And this is a fat-soluble molecule that moves within the membrane. For complex 2, no protons are moved across the membrane. 
Correct. Complex 2 helps deliver electrons to coenzyme Q. And what is coenzyme Q? It's a small molecule that can move inside the membrane and it delivers electrons from complex 1 and complex 2 to complex 3. What happens in complex 3? In complex 3, these electrons are once again moved to electron binding sites and then delivered to a protein called cytochrome C. While doing this, coenzyme Q releases electrons and protons and they release protons into the intermembrane space. So it helps to build up this proton gradient. In complex 3, electrons are delivered from coenzyme Q to a protein called cytochrome C. And this protein then delivers the electrons to complex 4, which is the one I've studied mostly the electrons that are taken up, they keep moving in a direct current fashion through all these complexes. In the end, it needs to go somewhere because we can't just build up a big pool of electrons. What would happen if they didn't go anywhere is that the whole system would stop because electrons couldn't be able to move on. What this complex does is that it delivers the electrons to oxygen. The oxygen takes up the electrons and is then converted into water. This process releases some free energy, which is used to pump protons from one side of the membrane to the other. And this gives a charge difference. Yes, a charge and a concentration difference. These processes, pro-complex 1, 3 and 4, pump protons across the membrane. And in the end, the electron has to go somewhere, so it binds to oxygen, which then forms water. Through this process, we have moved protons across the membrane, and by that we have built up a proton gradient. And that, of course, that has to be used to something. Yes, so it would be very bad if we just kept building up this charge difference. At this stage, I like to compare this system with a water power plant. Imagine if the membrane is like the dam. The inner membrane space where we have all these protons is kind of like the part of the dam where all the water is gathered. So now we have a lot of energy there that when we make an opening, the proton, they will move back to the side with less of them. They do this through a protein complex called the ATP synthase. And this one is actually very much like the turbine of a power plant. So the protons, as they move through this, the whole protein rotates and this uh, rotation drives structural changes that then drive catalysis. This catalysis then produces the molecule called ATP. So in all of these systems, it's all about converting energy. From glycosis all the way into ATP. Yes. And why is it important that we get ATP? It's a molecule that is used for a lot of basically any process in the cell that requires work. If I remember all the way through, then oxygen is absolutely necessary to carry out this process because we need something to bind the electron to. Yes. If we stop breathing, then electron transport chain simply stops working and we die. Yes. We talked about the membrane and the complexes within the membrane. How do they look? So for instance, if we just talk about complex one, it's actually a structure that is composed of a lot of different proteins that bind together with one another. And I think there are 13 proteins that are conserved between different organisms. If I look in different organisms, then there will be similarities between complex one and one organism and another. Yes. What their role is is the same, but how they exactly look can be different. Yes. The main difference between these complexes and the lipid part of the membrane is that these complexes are made up of proteins. Yes. 
while the membrane is made up of lipids, which again is made up of fatty acids. That's a general description, yes. How are these complexes placed through the membrane? That's actually a very interesting question that we have been trying to answer over the years. <laughs> in a textbook example, they will you know, sit one by one in a nice long row, and that's not necessarily how it looks in reality how they are organized specifically actually differs quite a lot between organisms. Main differences, I would say, are between bacteria and uh, eukaryotes, mammalians. So a eukaryote is a cell that has cell nucleus where we have our DNA. We have found recently that in, for instance, mammals, they seem to actually be together in what's called respiratory supercomplexes. So for instance, you can have a supercomplexes where you have complex one, three, and four sitting together as a big structure. When you started your PhD, did you then have all the tools for going into the lab and just doing research straight away? We definitely had to do more courses and we always learned new methods. But also, I mean, after having done a bachelor and a master's, after those five years, you had enough skills to just go into the lab and immediately start experimenting. The last course I went to was one year before my defense, roughly. And then I went to the Netherlands. We went into different labs and learned how to use a lot of different uh, instruments. They also set up a lot of lectures. Do you also go to conferences? Yes, we did that as well. I would say it's one of the privileges of being in research and in academia to be able to go to a conference where you spend maybe a week, maybe two, and you get to listen to other people talk about the research. I always had a talk, actually, when I went to a conference. And then people will find you and give you feedback and ask you questions questions and it's it's a very very nice experience almost everyone who takes an interest in what you do will come up to you and say that's very interesting tell me all about it in the most part it's actually about people wanting to ask questions because they see something that you do that is either relevant to their interests or actually directly relevant to research they do so they want to know all about what you're doing and they are happy to tell you about what they are doing and exchange ideas and come with tips and feedback and so. How did a normal work day look for you? A normal work day, I would say, would be getting to the office, maybe sitting down and looking through my plans for the day, just checking if there was anything needed to calculate before. And then you go into the lab and you start working and you do whatever it is you need to do, whether it's, you know, preparation of samples or doing measurements. Usually it's a mix of both. So you start preparing your samples and then when they're done, you measure on them as soon as you can because they're fragile and they need to be fresh. And a lot of them are some, to some degree, you know, living material that will degrade very rapidly. If you have time, maybe you sit and do the data analysis. How did you get into doing a PhD? So when I started studying at the university, the education was very academia focused. It was very research focused and I was very happy about this and it was very nice as well because all the lecturers were active researchers the teaching assistants were you know PhD students so you had a very very close contact to the departments I knew very early on that I you know I was studying chemistry because I found it to be an interesting subject and I wanted to learn more and I wanted to understand it better when I was asked if I wanted to do a PhD I jumped at the opportunity immediately so was it what you expected? Yes and no. I don't think anyone can prepare for what a PhD is actually like. It's a very strange lifestyle, I would say. And you really have to see it as that. It's it's not a job, it's not an education, it's both, but it's also a, very much a lifestyle. And that's, uh, you know, having one aspect of your life sort of control 
what the rest of your life is. It's uh, not really something, even if you hear people talk about it, you don't really prepare for it. <laughs> what was the best about being a PhD student then? Best thing was probably the freedom that you got to explore things. I was very lucky that my supervisor was putting a lot of faith and a lot of trust into me. And we really had the freedom to explore our ideas. You can spend months, sometimes even, you know, a year banging your head against the ball with a problem that you can't find a solution to. And you don't even understand what it is you can't solve because there's just so much complexity into a problem. And then suddenly you have an idea, you try it out, you get an answer, and you realize that you're actually seeing a pattern. You're seeing something that no one else has seen before. And that is a very gratifying feeling. And now as I asked you what is the best, then it's obvious that I'm also going to ask you what was the worst. I think the worst part of doing a PhD is that it's a lot of pressure you go into a thing where it's kind of for the next five years you have to work really hard on something that is very difficult where there are no answers if you don't succeed you get nothing out of it sometimes you have fantastic flexibility and freedom over your hours and sometimes you have no freedom it's one of those jobs where even when you do experimental disciplines like mine, you also have a lot of theory and kind of bring your work with you everywhere. It's easy to forget that all that time spent failing is actually a learning process as well. When you started your PhD, how broadly were the research questions formulated? In the beginning, we had one important question that we were just trying to answer. And then, you know, you added questions on top of that. What was that? The first question was, what happens if we change the lipids So we created a system during my master's thesis where we put two of the proteins from this whole ATP production into a membrane that we created synthetically in the lab. And then we asked the question, well, what happens if we change the lipids? Because at first we just had one type of lipids. But in the beginning, my supervisor gave me a lot more direction. And in the end, you know, the last year, I had almost complete freedom. How much of this is an individual work done by you and how much do you do it as, as a research group? It's one of those questions that doesn't really have a clear answer because most of the work you do, of course, is your work as an individual. But it's almost impossible in this field to do everything on your own. Some of the projects were mostly me. Some projects were we put together, you did this, I did that. For experimental work, it's incredibly time consuming. It's very difficult to be an expert on every method. So you often pool your resources, you discuss things with your colleagues all the time. We had regular meetings where we would present what we were doing and the rest of the group would give feedback. So it's a lot of exchange of expertise and ideas. One of the things you did was that you, out of different components, built a system that mimics the cell. It's not a complete cell you build. No. It is the part within the mitochondrion. Yes. An inner membrane. In a sense. I mean, we did a very, very simplistic system because we could study the whole cell and we can also purify whole mitochondria. The problem when you're studying these is that they are stacked with other proteins, different lipids, a lot of different things happening at the same time. So sometimes it's very difficult when you do an experiment because you can't see them. We always have to sort of measure everything indirectly. There's a lot of different methods you can use, but they are always kind of indirectly measuring things. What we did then is that we take specific proteins or complexes out of an organism, and then we put it back into a membrane that we make, which is also very simplistic. What we did was usually we took one or two lipids or very uh, common lipid mixture and made new membranes out of these. And then we put the proteins back in. The art of approximation. Exactly. It's one of those Occam's razor kind of things. You try to go for the easiest solution. And then when you learn more, you build 
up. So in your master thesis, you had built a membrane just out of lipids. Yes, we built the membrane and then we very much developed methods that we then came to use. Then in the PhD, you added on top of this. That's the basic idea. So we started with one type of lipid and then we introduced one other type. And we did this for a lot of different types of lipids. And we tried to see if there was simple effect based on the charge of the lipids because they have the tail that is fat soluble and then they have a head group that is more charged or water soluble. And this is forming the surface of the membrane. And we tried to see if we could see a trend. It's called a bilayer. So you have membrane that is composed of two layers of these lipids where they're both of them have the fat soluble part pointing inwards. Then you started adding things to these membranes. Yes. When we had these membranes, first we did a few processes to make sure that we had a sort of homogeneous mixture of so a mixture of very similar membrane structures. And then we, we had different methods of making sure that you had a fairly similar size of these membrane spheres. And after that, we tried putting these proteins that are normally embedded in the membrane back into these membranes. Meaning the complexes? Yes. In my research, we mostly studied complex 4 and also this ATP synthase. And then you simply take, and it, I'm guessing it's not simple, <laughs> but then the idea is that you take complex 4, yes. add it into the membrane and do the same with the complex that regulates a ATP synthase. Yes, that's actually exactly what we did. What we did is we developed a method where we could do this simultaneously. So we put them both in together at the same time. How do you do this? Because these complexes are normally in a membrane, they have a, you know, a fat-soluble part and a water-soluble part. What we do to get them out of the membrane is that we dissolve the membrane with detergent. Okay. And then the detergent, because it has very similar to lipids, both a fat-soluble part and a water-soluble part, will sort of put the fat-soluble part towards the fat-soluble part of the protein. You will get like little proteins that are surrounded by detergent. So it's very similar to how detergent work when we do the dishes. Then it will leave, I guess, all the complexes. Exactly. And then we have different separation methods to make sure we only get the one we want. And what we quite often do is that we actually do a genetic modification where we put a little tag on the protein complex that we can easily sort of grab onto. So then we can make a very specific separation where we only get the proteins we want. Then we basically mix the proteins that are now dissolved in detergent, some more detergent, and these membranes we make. And then we have some methods to filter away the detergent. And when the detergent removes the proteins because they are not very happy in a water environment, they will go into the fat-soluble part of the membrane. That's pretty cool. That is very neat. The complexes you took, where did they come from? We used initially proteins from E. coli or from bovine hearts, so cow hearts, or from spinach. How similar are they? In many ways, very similar. Of course, spinach is a plant, so it has photosynthesis, but it also has this ATP synthase. What was really interesting was that we could take the complex 4 from a cow, and we could take the ATP synthase from spinach, and we could put them in the same membrane, and they actually work together. And this is, of course, because the common thing with them is the transport of these protons. I guess it is 
a lot more difficult to do actually <laughs> the principles are very simple then you can you know you can scratch your head for ages with trying to optimize <laughs> on how to actually do it <laughs> yeah how to make it work <laughs> what did you want to study with this so the interesting thing we could do with this is that we could actually deliver electrons to complex four so we could activate it because normally it needs complex one two three to be to be activated it needs to get you know electrons from the citric acid cycle and then through all these complexes but we we have ways that we can cheat we can chemically give it electrons through other means and when doing so we activate it it starts pumping protons it starts consuming oxygen but the interesting thing is of course the proton pumping so we can build up this proton gradient that we talked about earlier because we also have ATP synthase, as long as we have all the molecules that it needs to do the catalytic process of creating ATP, we can actually make ATP. We can measure the activity of the complex four. We can measure how fast the ATP is being produced. We can then learn a lot about the rates at which these different complexes work. And what we wanted to do with this system is then see how are these rates affected by when we change the lipid environment. What did you find? In very broad terms, we found that the lipid environment affects the rates of what happens in the system as a whole without actually affecting the separate proteins themselves. And we found that one of the plausible explanations for why this happens is that the lipid environment actually changes how these proteins interact with one another. What can you use this knowledge to? It adds to the knowledge of how the cells are constructed, how they are working in a sort of dynamic situation. Can you use this to say anything about how the inner membrane in a human mitochondria? I would say that's a big leap to make from this data to draw, draw any conclusions about that because this is an incredibly simplified system that of course in some ways it, it represents how it looks in the cells but in many ways it does not and that is of course always the things you have to weigh when you do a mimetic system you have to figure out you know which parts of these are actually applicable which are not applicable some of these things might only work in bacteria others might work in a human cell so you know it's always an ongoing discussion but then when you have enough of these experiments and, and these different types of researches, you can put them all together and get a whole picture. There is some research to be done before you are able to build a replica that does exactly what the inner membrane does. Yes. In this type of question, what is the established knowledge? I love this question because it's a, it's a very open question. And in, in many ways, the established knowledge is the open questions. I was absolutely taking a lot of established knowledge and using that to try to answer the questions I had. But then we also find constantly that the things we thought we had completely figured out actually have still a lot of open questions. I mentioned before that we have these super complexes where we have several of these different respiratory complexes put together. It was discovered in the 2000s. When it was first discovered, people said, oh, no, but this is, you know, an artifact of your method. This is not actually something that happens in the cell. You know, one and a half decade later, everyone are pretty sure that, yeah, I mean, this happens, but to what extent and why? I don't know if you think there's anything I haven't covered that you would like me to cover. I don't know, to be honest. I, I feel we've had a very good discussion and sort of getting <laughs> sidetracked. It's been very interesting. I had fun. And I can't really remember what we've covered or not anymore because we, no. we've been sidetracking so much. But it's been, it's been an interesting talk. 
listen to Nyfiken, and this was Peel speaking with Tobias, who has finished his PhD at Stockholm University in biochemistry. If you want to know more about Tobias' research, you can find more information at our webpage, nyfiken.co. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook as Curious Nyfiken in one word. This episode of Nyfiken was published in July 2020.